so what we found was that there was a reduction in uh, demand for healthcare and an increase in medical mistrust, particularly uh, for older black men um, who were kind of closer versus farther away from the centroid of, of, of this um, experiment, closer versus farther away from Macon County, Alabama. Um, and we measured proximity in two ways. We measured proximity by, you know, regular geographic distance, but we also used um, the Great Migration. So how linked um, people were to uh, Alabama through migratory patterns of the Great Migration. And they both kind of gave us very similar results. So our estimates imply that life expectancy at age 45 for Black men fell by up to 1.5 years in response to the disclosure which accounts for roughly 35% of the life expectancy gap between black and white older men um, in 1980. Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guest today is Marcella Alshan. She is a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, an infectious disease doctor, and an applied microeconomist studying health inequality. Marcella has published some of the most exceptional and creative work on health inequities and I was thrilled, but not at all surprised, when she was recognized for her work with the MacArthur Genius Award in 2021. Marcella recently sat down with me to discuss her winding career path and her remarkable studies on medical mistrust, racial concordance between physicians and patients, and the effects of these factors on care-seeking behaviors and deeply entrenched health inequities. Marcella, I am so excited to get to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. So as you probably can imagine, it's not every day that I get to talk to an infectious disease doctor, applied microeconomist, <laughs> MacArthur genius <laughs> all the time. So I have so many questions about your life story and your path, but you've published some of your seminal work in econ journals that some of our audience might not have seen. So why don't we start by talking about Tuskegee and medical mistrust. In 2018, you published a study called Tuskegee and the Health of Black Men, where you looked at the relationship between the disclosure of the Tuskegee experiment in 1972 and health utilization and outcomes among Black men in the eight years that followed. And it's really a remarkable piece of scholarship because you take something that's so hard to study, which is mistrust, and you so elegantly suggest a causal relationship 
between mistrust and health utilization and outcomes in that period. So I, I would love to hear you talk about what the study showed, but I also wanna know how you got the idea and how you came up with the methodology. It's a fantastic summary, I think, of the of what the paper can and, and cannot do with one small caveat, which is that the paper is not able to look at sort of long-term implications of the disclosure event. And one small, I think, important addition, which is the paper tries to understand how actions have consequences, how exploitation, targeted exploitation of a particular group actually affects uh, beliefs and then moving on um, to that demand for healthcare uh, or behavior. And, um, and so the article addresses the specific disclosure of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, um, which was egregious and how it affects demand uh, for preventative care specifically among older black men in the decade that followed. This question of how exploitation affects health over the long run and shapes beliefs is I think an important one that is still kind of on the table, but we were unable to capture. Um, the first I heard of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was um, as a college student in the nineteen in the late nineteen nineties. I'm sitting in a class by Alan Brandt, uh, who's a historian um, of medicine, and it really shook me to the core. Uh, I, I remember where I was sitting. I remember the lecture hall because I, at that point, I knew that I wanted to become a physician. Um, and I was specifically interested in HIV AIDS. So uh, sexually transmitted infections more broadly. And here he was telling me that in the last three decades, there had been a study that was specifically targeting black men. The official name of the study was the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. It lasted for four decades, which is an extraordinarily long time for any study. And it essentially was led by the United States Public Health Service and they denied men access to treatment and they lied to them. They said that they were studying, you know, bad blood, quote unquote. Um, and so that uh, lecture, the series of lectures he gave on that study really stayed with me, um, given, I think, you know, that critical period of development that I was, um, 18, 19 years old, and also, um, just how it just seemed to complete anathema to what I thought um, doctors were supposed to do. But I didn't have the tools really to, to take it any farther than that. And it wasn't until I be, became um, 
a student in the PhD program at Harvard Economics, that I both had access to some of the methodological tools that would made a causal analysis using observational data on this topic possible. And complementary to that methodological revolution, which has really occurred in um, econometrics over the last one to two decades, this is the the causal inference revolution as it's known, um, there has been an expanding view of, you know, quote, what is economics, quote unquote, in the sense that there's a, a, a growing chorus of scholars who are interested in history and interested in um, intergenerational uh, effects of, of events. So it was this combination of these two things coming together that made um, made asking this question possible. And then I was able to find a, a really outstanding co-author in Marianne Wanamaker, um, who's at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and um, and is a, is a card-carrying labor economist. But she was willing to kind of take the risk with me and, and do this project together. Okay. So we all of a sudden like got, you, you went from being a medicine resident to a PhD in economics, which is so unusual. Um, so I think before I hear more about the Tuskegee experiment and what you found and then how you put it together, why don't we talk about that leap? Because clearly you were, you, you were interested since you were in college and you heard about this horrifying moment in, well, 40 years of our history. Um, but then you did go on and train in internal medicine. And I know that at some point you must have thought, okay, I'm going to go get a PhD in economics. But like, <laughs> what what happened? Uh, I, you know, I don't plan ahead very, I don't, <laughs> I, do, I do not. I just you know, day, day by day. And, um, I think if I had thought about how many years, uh, everything would take, maybe I would, you know, have chosen otherwise. Um, at the time I was honestly thinking very practically, I was thinking, what are the skills I need, um, to do the work I want to do? And, uh, I had gone into, college thinking I, I wanted to become a physician. I wanted to work for Doctors Without Borders. That was my um, life's, really my life's goal. Um, but then as a medical student, I had the opportunity to travel. And so I was in Quito, Ecuador at the public hospital. And I just realized that after all of this study of anatomy and physiology, and, you know, you're a medical student, you're so excited to draw blood and to start using all of this hard-won knowledge. But in fact, what was happening was that it was all cash. Like there were no supplies in the emergency room. So if someone needed a blood draw, you had to ask them to go down the street to the pharmacia and buy, you know, they would need to buy the syringe. They would be need to buy the needle. They would need to get any test tube or anything like that um, because there was just no supplies, no medications. Um, and it's just really dedicated staff. 
And that was the first part of my summer was working in that emergency room at Eugenio Espejo. And then the second part was doing an internship at the Institute for Health and Social Justice at Partners in Health. And at that point, I was reading this book, Dying for Growth, which was edited by Jim Kim and Joyce Millen, both medical anthropologists. And it kind of started to rationalize what I was seeing on the ground. It talked about macroeconomic policy. It talked about structural adjustment programs, international financial institutions, the gutting of social um, you know, services in health and education in order to make debt payments. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is this entire language that I don't have and I feel like I need because all of these tools in clinical medicine are kind of being wasted in the sense that because I don't have a, you know, again, my very practical, pragmatic thinking, I can't cure poverty. <laughs> so what what's the doctorate for that? <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that a PhD in economics, it's not a magic bullet <laughs> for poverty, but I think it did increase the depth of understanding that I have for these issues, did give me a new set of tools um, to kind of address, uh, you know, as we were discussing the Tuskegee study, you would never want to randomize medical mistrust, but unfortunately, you can leverage the fact that um, there are plenty of historical incidents. Um, and uh, and so it sort of broadened the the toolkit that I have to address some of the questions um, that I think are are important. So okay, so then let's go back. So you go to Harvard after you finished your internal medicine residency. Did you know then you wanted to do microeconomics? Well, I have to say that I had a lot of mentorship along the way, and I had people who saw in me more than I saw in myself. So I, I started off with a master's of public health um, and David Bloom said, you know, you seem like you're kind of taking to this economics <laughs> uh, uh, field. Why, why don't you think about a PhD? So, um, so I took the GREs as a fourth year med student. And then when I applied, again, this was a fairly new innovation, the Howard Hyatt Global, Global health. health Equity Residency, right? Um, when I applied, I, I kind of mentioned to Joel Katz, the program director at the time, that I was interested in this. And so, you know, Dr. Katz did what Dr. Katz does, <laughs> which was write to everyone. Uh, I saved the email um, where he's writing to Howard, he's writing to Jim Kim, he's writing to Paul Farmer, he's writing to David Cutler, and he's coordinating, you know, he's saying, you know, the goal would be to get her out of this training before she's Medicare eligible. <laughs> but she has this vision and we, and I, and I, and let's see if we can make it a reality. So I applied to the PhD program as an intern and then I deferred and Joel made it, Dr. Katz made it so that I could short track into the PhD in economics and the infectious disease fellowship. So you're in this econ program. And I kind of want to know what that was like for you after you had been in medical school and internal medicine. Um, you know, we hear a lot now about how it's hard on women to be in 
economic PhD programs, and I'm sure it was hard to be learning this completely different skill set. So what what was that experience like for you? Well, I can't separately identify the effect of being, you know, coming out of a second year residency and, um, and being a new mom. So I had a six week old when I started. Oh my goodness. Wow. The PhD program. (laughs) Wow. Um, and so that was different for a lot of the administration in the PhD program, but I have to say that, um, people went out of their way to make it possible for me to continue. I mean, unlike the sort of modal PhD student, I had a pretty good outside option. Right. <laughs> you know, if this, <laughs> if this didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, clinical medicine is so fast paced and so team oriented and, and so instant gratification when you can clinch that diagnosis and, see the patient's fever curve turn around. (laughs) And here you are, you know, studying things that are, especially the first year coursework is, um, it's, you know, heavily theory based and it doesn't seem super practical. Um, at least, uh, again, compared to where I was coming from, but I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of support along the way. Um, I like to tell the story, uh, of another, uh, really terrific advisor, David Cutler, who would just meet with me regularly. And I would say, you know, David, I think, I think I might need to quit this now. (laughs) (laughs) And he would say, give it two more weeks. Every two weeks, this was our conversation. (laughs) I think it worked itself out in the end. And, um, and it's been exciting, especially as you move forward in the program, once you get past, you know, your general exams in macroeconomics and microeconomics, you move on to econometrics, then you get to do field um, coursework in public economics, in development economics, in labor economics. And that and that's where it starts to really feel like, you know, almost like your third and fourth year of medical school, you really start practicing your craft. you turn the corner from a consumer of information to a producer of research. And, and that's where it becomes much more gratifying. I, I, I stopped asking every other week about quitting at that point. Okay. So I, I know you did a bunch of work in between, you know, when you were doing your dissertation and when you published your data on Tuskegee, but I do, I do want to hear what you found in that study. And have you described the methods because they really are so elegant? Well, going back to the official um, title of the study itself, the the PHS study is the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. So that tells one three things off the bat. It's taking place in Tuskegee, Alabama. There are individuals who have been identified as suffering from syphilis who will not be treated, and it's specifically targeting Black men. And then you combine that with the fact that this disclosure event was, you know, this incredible whistleblower, Peter Buxton, uh, in 1972. Um, That gives you a date. So you have 
a, you know, socio-demographic, you know, exactly uh, who they're targeting, Black men, where they're doing it, Tuskegee, Alabama, and when. And so we combine all of those features, and it was older Black men that we were interested in at the time of the disclosure event, because many of those study subjects would have been older by that time if they had survived. So we combined all of that in um, a difference and difference and difference and differences approach. Yes, that is the appropriate um, title, but essentially leveraging the fact that it affected this particular group so we can compare, you know, um, black men to other demographic groups, older black men to other older demographic groups, be it white men, white women, black women, et cetera, nearer versus farther from the study site in the period before versus after the disclosure event. Um, and we can absorb all, because we have so many differences kind of baked in, we can absorb a lot of other potential threats that you might think of when you're trying to uh, use observational data to draw a causal inference. Um, so we can take into account that there might be other changes happening in those areas to black individuals overall. Um, and in fact, most of those other changes that we're thinking of in the, in the early 1970s would have actually been pushing towards convergence. Um, things like the desegregation of hospitals because of the Medicare and Medicaid uh, introduction or um, just the improved knowledge of uh, how to treat certain conditions and things like that. Um, so, so what we found was that there was a reduction in uh, demand for healthcare and an increase in medical mistrust, particularly uh, for older Black men um, who were kind of closer versus farther away from the centroid of, of, of this um, experiment, closer versus farther away from Macon County, Alabama. Um, and we measured proximity in two ways. We measured proximity by just, you know, regular geographic distance, but we also used um, the Great Migration. So how linked um, people were to uh, Alabama through migratory patterns of the Great Migration. And they both kind of gave us very similar results. So our estimates imply that life expectancy at age 45 for black men fell by up to 1.5 years in response to the disclosure, which accounts for roughly 35% of the life expectancy gap between black and white older men um, in 1980. And what was the response to your paper like? I think this was the closest that I have been to feeling like a, like a physician feels when, you know, when you, when you, when you make that diagnosis and you feel the gratitude from, from a patient or a patient's family because, uh, maybe they haven't felt heard. Um, so we, Marianne and I, um, were delighted by the fact that first when we were presenting the study, so this would happen um, in, in economics, you typically have these very lengthy papers and you, you put them out as working papers and you kind of go around to different 
um, seminars and, and not so much in economic seminars because there is, we, we have a, a diversity problem in economics that again, you mentioned before that we're working on, but I would also present in sort of population health seminars. So that would bring together many different disciplines, sometimes even members of the community. And so we started to get these reactions. I remember one woman came up to me and um, she was a pediatrician herself, um, but she grew up in Ohio. Um, she was black and she said that uh, she remembers that her parents would drive them hours uh, to go to a, a, a physician that was black when she was little. And she remembers it happened after this event and that they felt like they couldn't, um, that they couldn't trust doctors to see their kids um, after this event. And, and then, uh, so we would get these anecdotes and then um, Van Newkirk uh, writing for the Atlantic uh, was interviewing us and he had his own personal story from his grandparents and his parents. Um, and he didn't only just write about our study. He actually went on social media and he collected all of these anecdotes um, from, from people that had memories of this, had experienced this. Um, and so we, I think there were two feelings. One is, one is just absolute um, gratitude towards all of those individuals that had shared their stories and provided some affirmation for what we were doing. Because even though I mentioned, you know, there was these methodological revolution and then this sort of new openness to looking at history and, and how that might affect development more broadly. It was still a little bit out there. Um, but second of all, you know, I think just as you are as a clinician, you're always hoping that you got it right. You're always looking for the, the, the clinical parameters to suggest that indeed, you know, this is the right path forward. I, I feel that way with my research. I, 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 I still feel like this is the best we can do right now. And as the field progresses, we might have new methods. We have, might not get better data. We might come, we might update the conclusions. So this was just like an incredible gift to see in, in real time that it resonated with people, the exact people that we wanted to, it to resonate with. Yeah, there was pushback from other <laughs> corners of, um, talking heads and things like that, but that is all just noise, noise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, once you, and, and honestly, that was the closest experience I've had to sort of being a doctor and getting energy from, from the, the patient side, like, you know, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for taking this on and asking these questions and looking for, uh, looking for answers. Wow. That's so moving to hear about that. I mean, and it is, it's just an, it's an exceptional study and analysis. 
Um, let's fast forward um, because I know that when you discovered the impact of medical mistrust, something in your head went, what can I possibly do about mistrust? That's right. And so all of a sudden you're conducting an RCT unlike any I've ever seen where you literally built your own clinic and um, you studied whether race concordance affects uptake of preventive health services among black men in Oakland. And it's, it's just another exceptional study, um, which I imagine was harder to operationalize. As sophisticated as the econometrics are, conducting an RCT where you have to build your own clinic and do something that nobody's ever done was probably harder. So I would, I would love to hear first how you got the idea, because you could have studied any intervention to address mistrust and you, you chose race concordance. So I want to hear about that. And then I want to hear what it was like. Well, the, you're right that the, there's a whole set of things that we need to do as a society to reduce inequities in healthcare you know, racial inequity in healthcare, income inequality and inequities in healthcare um, and in health outcomes, I should say. Um, so the two things that led me to study um, racial diversity amongst the physician workforce was one, you know, what could I actually experimentally manipulate? Like what could I actually um, what, what's in my feasible set. I, I can't, you know, I can't randomize, um, though, though some people have, you know, done this, but I, I, I didn't have the connections to sort of randomize the offer of health insurance or, or, um, or things of that nature, um, or some of the other important social determinants. Uh, so it was, you know, what's in my feasible set. And then two, what, what are the leading medical institutions, the our esteemed institutions, the National Academy of Medicine, the AMA, the AAMC, what are they saying in terms of what could move the needle on improving uh, outcomes for, for Black Americans? And they all have these statements, mission statements on, you know, policy positions that we should have uh, a workforce that more nearly represents the population that it's trying to serve. And so with that in mind, and this was totally, could never have done this without um, the relationships uh, that I forged, particularly with Dr. Owen Garrick, who is um, a physician by training as well, who at the time ran his own nonprofit called Bridge Clinical, which was seeking to improve the representation in clinical trials um, and was from Oakland. So... Uh, we, alongside a, a graduate student, Grant Graziani, started these conversations about, okay, well, um, what clinic can we partner with to do this work? And, and I should say uh, that when I initially brought this to sort of other economists, I think a natural response was, well, why don't you just use observational data to draw mm -hmm. causal inference, because that's a lot easier. Um, you know, we can get some quasi-experimental variation from random matches in the emergency room or something like that. But I really wanted to study preventative care. 
And I really wanted to look at people that were not, you know, there's something about coming to the emergency room. You're obviously an extremis. That's a different frame of reference in terms of your mental model and decision-making than when you're, you know, when the, when you're trying to seek out preventative care. So, um, so that, that wasn't the mental model that I wanted to get at. A lot of, you know, from a health economist standpoint, I think the party line would be that preventable emergency room visits are actually something we want to avoid from a quality standpoint and a cost standpoint. And then again, I think we really need to think about, you know, what's the policy relevant parameter that we're trying to estimate. And I think that I think most clinicians would agree that if you can prevent or capture a disease at an earlier stage, the opportunities for changing the trajectory of the illness are just so much greater. Um, So we kind of set aside the idea of using observational data and some of the the causal inference revolutionary stuff and thought, okay, let's do a good old-fashioned RCT, something feasible, something policy important, relevant, important. So naturally, let's go just partner with a clinic in the Bay Area. And then the problem, Lisa, was that we couldn't find one clinic that had an African-American male physician. I'm not kidding. It wasn't because we thought, let's start a pop-up clinic. It was literally did not exist. And I think that speaks to how profound the problems of you know, having black men represented, I mean, again, diversity more broadly too, but particularly black men, the numbers have just been low and stagnant since the 1970s. And so that is, it was really out of necessity that we partnered with, um, with, uh, allergist who just happened to not have clinic on Saturdays (laughs) and allowed us to work, um, in that space. We brought together physicians, um, and we were able to hire over a long period of time um, enough clinicians, black male physicians, um, non-black, mostly white or East Asian male physicians. And then um, it was also really important that we brought in people that weren't routinely seeking care, which is another problem with administrative data. Um, If you're in the system, if you're looking for people in the record, whose information is not out of date, by the way, because of the churn and all, you know, separate discussion, but whose contact information is actually up to date and who are regularly in the system, that is not, again, the policy uh, policy relevant estimate that I was looking for. I'm looking for men coming from the community who would have these really high returns for preventative care. Um, and so that was Dr. Garrick's brilliance was like, you know, let's use barbershops to recruit because men are generally, this is a trusted space. People hang out there, people from all walks of life. You follow your barber. You don't go to a specific shop. So if your barber changes shops, you go to that shop. So you can get people crossing zip codes left and right. Um, so what is this estimate? This estimate is conditional on having meaningful access to a quality healthcare provider because 
our clinic was open on Saturdays and Uber donated ride sharing. Um, so we had transportation, we were open, (laughs) we had space conditional on that. This is the estimate, um, that, um, that we get from randomizing, um, the the men who came to our clinic to either a, um, black versus non-black provider. So you, I know you, you, 1,300 men or so were screened, right? And then more than 600 showed up. And then you randomized them, but then there were two phases of the study, right? And so- Precisely. What, what, what did you do in the first phase and why did it matter? Great question. So, um, so the way that the clinic worked is they came into the um, patient room and they were received a tablet in which they, this was the first stage. We called it the preclinical encounter stage. Um, they had a f- photograph of the doctor that they were going to see. And then they had an opportunity to select which preventative services, if any, um, that they were interested in receiving that day. Um, then in the second stage, the encounter stage, they actually met that same doctor in person. Um, and then they could reoptimize. They could choose different, um, different uh, services. They could say that they don't want specific services. The services that we offered, by the way, were um, blood pressure, BMI, so height and weight. Those are kind of the more non-invasive things. And then we had um, cholesterol and A1C, diabetes, which were um, took a finger prick abroad and we had these um, um, devices that you could on the spot give you, um, could give you uh, readings of your cholesterol and A1C. And then we also had flu vaccination um, donated by Alameda County. So, uh, so they could decide, again, they could say, in fact, I don't want those things or I want those things. And the doctors were just told, the doctors, by the way, were blinded to the actual rationale for the study until afterwards. We told all of them knew that the goal of the study was to provide preventative preventative care to black men who might otherwise not have a resource. So you have to think about the selection of the doctors who were going into this. This is probably like, you know, the best of the best in terms of what you're going to see in, in discrimination wise. So their job was just to go in and try and talk to, um, individuals about the importance of preventative screening period. And, um, why we had these two stages was because we were trying to disentangle two different hypotheses. So you can imagine that if the men, if there are patients after the first stage, just made a snap judgment based on the photo and said, look, I'm willing to take up more preventatives under this type of doctor versus that type of doctor. That might suggest that there's some sort of taste-based preference for a particular type of physician. Um, and we weren't sure which way it would go. You know, that's the equipoise in which you're supposed to conduct clinical trials is it could go that people kind of prefer doctors who quote unquote looked like them just all else equal just by seeing a photo. Or it could be that, you know, internalized racism and such could go the opposite way. You, you really didn't know, but it would be a snap sort of judgment based on a photo and minimal information that we gave on qualifications that was symmetric across all doctors. Um, and it would reveal a particular taste. 
On the other hand, if it wasn't until the second stage when they actually got to meet the physician in person and talk about the preventives that were being offered, maybe it would actually really matter that rapport, that communication, that trust. And indeed, what we found is absolutely no difference in the demand for preventatives in the first stage. There's no sort of snap judgments being made. There's no particular taste or aversion that we detect. In fact, all of the difference that we see, and it's a pretty pronounced difference that we see in the demand for preventative care, comes after that second stage when the doctors and the patients um, actually have a chance to interact. And that suggested to us that it's more about something about the reverence of the clinical encounter and the rapport that you need to establish between a doctor and a patient in order to, you know, um, produce health. Uh, so I'll never forget when I interviewed you about this maybe two years ago, I asked you why you didn't submit the data to the New England Journal because it's an RCT and it shows really a remarkable effect and in increased uptake of preventive services among Black men when they are randomly assigned to, to Black doctors. And you said, well, you know, there's no mechanism of action. And I said... <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? And and you described to me, and I think it's what you're beginning to get at right now, but some of the interactions and what you overheard in the hallways and and some of what was going on in the notes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 talk about some of the, you know, the broader differences between, you know economics as a science and I think the biomedical sciences um, uh, as well. But yeah, so we thought that there were several possibilities that could explain these results. So the second stage clearly put the focus on the encounter itself. But what was it about the encounter? Were the doctors, were the non-Black doctors, were they discriminating against the men? Like I told you that the selection is such that it didn't seem, you know, a priori that that would be high on the list, but it certainly seems possible. Were maybe the, maybe I selected just the cream of the crop black doctors. Was there some sort of quality differential or effort differential? How do you measure effort? It's difficult, but we looked at time spent in the encounter and conditional on choosing just more stuff that takes more time, like adjusting for the average time those tests take to run. There was actually no difference in the amount of time spent. Okay, physician resumes, no differences there. We did a little bit of a um, of a sort of a, a sort of screening test on medical knowledge, no differences there either. I mean, we weren't asking them to do extremely difficult, um, challenging tasks where quality differentials you would think would make a huge difference anyway. So set that one aside. What about um, what about bias, discrimination on the on you know? by the non-Black physicians. So we can actually look at that. So maybe for, for those who actually got screened, um, for example, for an A1C, we would see higher values for those patients who were assigned to non-Black physicians because the physicians were implicitly using a different threshold. So you didn't just have to have, you know, polyuria. You also had to have, you know, some other indicator of 
diabetes, that polydipsia or something like that, that would kind of change the threshold or you had to have a family history that was like some other, some, something else that would make the threshold that the doctor was using um, on average higher for those patients that were paired to a non-Black physician versus a Black physician. So that on average, the clinical parameters were more averse, but we don't see anything like that. More basically, when we look at the patient comments on the doctors, they love all the doctors. They're, you know, they're extremely positive. They're rating them all, you know, on average 4.9 on a five-point scale. Like this would be press gainy scores that <laughs> we'd be really excited to get. Um, so it just didn't look like that was the any of those other sort of mechanisms could explain the result. Communication-wise, when we looked at the notes. The notes had more details about the patients in them. And in fact, what we were seeing popping up in those patients that were assigned to non-Black physicians, we were seeing them say things like, um, you know, not now, just like putting things off a lot or talking about a PCP, patient will get at PCP, even though we knew from the barbershop surveys that the vast majority of these men did not have a PCP. And so I think it was a sense of just either miscommunication or, you know, I just want to tell this person something so that they'll stop bothering me, or I can tell this person doesn't want me to bother them. So I'm just going to write, you know, we can't, we can't get farther than that. But um, whereas in the notes from the black physicians, we see all of this detail about their life, you know, in the text analysis, they were more efficient at extracting information, useful information. And whether that's, I mean, communication is, you know, work two ways. And so uh, in this race concordant dyad, there was more efficient extraction of useful information that could be leveraged to uh, to persuade and lead to a higher take-up of preventative care. But there are shortcomings to any study. This one is obviously no exception. So, you know, what are the drawbacks? 14 physicians. How representative are the patients? This is, you know, a local average treatment effect in Oakland. Um, does it extrapolate to this situation or that situation? I mean, I think at this point, there have been sort of those quasi-experimental studies looking at matches of women when they're coming in for to give birth that seem to suggest um, a concordance effect there. Um, you know, there, so there's been other sort of corroborating evidence uh, along the lines. But I mean, I think I think it shows, you know, whether or not the magnitude is totally accurate or applies in all different settings, there's reasons to think that it could be a lower bound given that we, I don't, I didn't find evidence of discrimination, which we know exists. So, you know, imagine the generic interactions that you might um, see. Um, but it could be an upper bound because we, we sorted all this other, these other uh, social determinants. We just wanted to not have those interfere in some way. Um, so 
the, and this is the difference between obviously being a social scientist and being sort of a bench, you know, wet lab scientist where you can hopefully control the environment, get the mechanism at the molecular level and make sure that it will reproduce um, pretty f with much fidelity time and time again. And this actually goes back to why, you know, Van Newkirk was so helpful uh, uh, for so many reasons, because I, I can look at those two different spheres that, that those, you know, the, the burden of evidence that you need to really make it past the FDA and, you know, in general and the, the level of, um, the level of certainty you need for that. And in social sciences, and I have to say that I feel a little bit hesitant sometimes to make really strong pronouncements because I know that it's, it's, um, just the exercise in and of itself is going to be, uh, doesn't have the the molecular basis in the back of in the back of it. Um, so when when it when it resonates with people and when you get that sort of reaction, it really it really um, I think helps to affirm that you are indeed on the right track. Um, right. I mean, we know we have a massive problem of underrepresentation. So you didn't have to show that. And what you established is that that underrepresentation is causing worse health, it seems to me. And, you know, I don't think you'd need to pass the FDA bar to have, <laughs> uh, you know, plausibly establish that relationship. And I, and I hope that that was the response to the trial. We need a different standard for establishing, you know, I don't know what the right word is, social science meets medicine, but, but it's, it's not a drug trial. Yeah, no, it, 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 um, so, and, and there, I mean, there are efforts, um, coming out of Berkeley and to, you know, improve transparency and in, in pre-analysis plans and replication, replicability, but yeah, it's going to be a different exercise. It's going to be, I guess, is what I'm saying. It has to be a mosaic of evidence and and we and obviously with humility which is which is what you bring to clinical medicine too you know you you look at both the RCT you look at the observational analysis you look at the qualitative studies the qualitative remarks from people who are at the front lines who've had these experiences and you kind of put that all together i guess what i w will what i what i am thrilled about is that I do think sometimes the RCT is the missing piece, you know, in that, in that mosaic. And I was so thrilled with the team that we put together with the funding from the Poverty Action Lab at MIT, which really took a chance on us, um, that we were able to, um, to execute the study with fidelity and show the results because it's also just extremely easy on the mind to say, we randomized, here's the mean for this group, here's the mean for that group. No difference and difference and difference and difference. <laughs> no, you know, no, uh, you know, we need, we need several pages to describe the assumptions and not whatnot. So it is just a very, it's, it's a ex extremely powerful way to 
kind of communicate scientific findings. And I think it, it alongside these other pieces can really com- help with the narrative. Um, I know. And I think it did. And, and one thing I'm curious about is whether you feel like your leap into this space using a randomized controlled trial to study an intervention is inspiring other RCTs or, you know, that level of evidence, which, which we need because it's what people respond to. (laughs) I hope it does. Um, But it was made possible by this causal inference revolution and, you know, and Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, Michael Kramer received the Nobel in economics recently for their work bringing randomized trials to development economics. I mean, this is, so this is building off of many, many others, and then the Poverty Action Lab um, providing funding for this. But I think, you know, obviously with all of the, you know, needing equipoise, needing to make sure that you don't already know the answer to the question and that things are being um, done in in the uh, most appropriate way possible that will actually be of societal benefit. Um, I, I think there's there's no doubt that translating to policymakers the findings from an RCT is just infinitely easier than discussing, you know, a any other difference. <laughs> a quadruple difference. Right. Exactly. Exactly, Lisa. You've got yeah. it. So I, I just want to acknowledge, just because I have it, not only the funding and Dr. Garrick, but also the students. We had a lot of students helping us too, and they were fantastic. And I'm one of the things that, you know, it's scary to do an RCT on something that is potentially so policy relevant and important. But I thought to myself, okay, at least we're going to get a lot of people screened, you know, hopefully vaccinated. And then the students working for us, a lot of them got to say that they, you know, were RAs at Stanford and they weren't Stanford students. There were a few Stanford students, but a lot of them were from Oakland, from the community colleges around Oakland and things like that. And that was just really terrific. Um, So that is another very cool thing about doing field experiments is kind of bringing along a whole generation of researchers and other scholars. Why don't we do this? Tell me what, what is hard for you? I think this is important also for trainees to hear or PhD students to hear because here you are. And if they Google you, they're like Marcella Alshan, MacArthur Genius, has published this seminal work, you know, in, in health inequities, but obviously like life goes in many different directions before you get to that point. So what do you, what do you feel like have been your biggest challenges? Well, for the trainees, I just have to say their ability to absorb information and to already have such intuition about theory and evidence and data I mean that that's really remarkable. I mean I'm 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 talking about the masters in public policy and some of the undergrads but I mean it's really exciting to see how advanced they are in their thinking at a stage where I was so much just really confused and and just trying to find my way. I think the the students are just have uh, absorbed a lot more um 
information at this point and are really savvy, um, which is exciting. Um, and I still struggle with being a little tentative sometimes, being a little bit intimidated sometimes. Um, and, uh, and I, I think that doesn't do anyone any good. Uh, so, um, I, I just try and tell students to have, uh, you know, ratatouille approach to, to life. Anybody can be an economist. Anybody can be a, you know, someone that works in medical sciences. Everyone has something to offer. You know, we all have this just brief period of time to, to find what we love. This is the three questions, you know, what do we love? What are we good at and what can make the world a better place? So just, just go for it. And then all that self-doubt, that's just inefficient. <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> just try and cut it out, you know? I love you are such an economist. I mean, I'm going to tell, I'm going to say that to myself. I mean, I feel intimidated all the time and like the way I just, I don't think of it as inefficient because I don't think like you think, but I think, well, at least like, at least I'm human and then other, I can help other people feel more human when they feel the same way, you know, because it's very hard to just like remove it. It's very hard. I think, I mean, if there was a pill for that, can you let me <laughs> High bar for FDA approval. Right? <laughs> no, I know it's, it, but it, it's. I think it. I think it's good for people to hear that even somebody like you still feels that way. And I don't. I don't know how much society needs to change to make you people like you not feel that way, or if it's just something that that we do that you know. I don't know. I think. I think a lot of it is internal. I mean, but of course, we're absorbing a lot of what. Of, of, of societal expectations and whatnot. But, um, I think if helping people is the objective, then you can kind of get yourself to the point where you're taking these risks, where you're, you know, where you're finding the funding, finding the mentorship, finding the data, putting it together, running for office, whatever it might be. If you, you know, you can find the confidence to do those things if you kind of remember, okay, this is what I'm doing it for. I think that is an awesome place to end. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, so you honored. are amazing. You are just so amazing. I'm so happy to have gotten to talk to you. My guest is Marcella Alshan, a humble MacArthur genius, economist, physician, and professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Marcella's work has helped illuminate some of the key causes and mechanisms of racial inequities in U.S. health and medicine, and it provides direction for physicians, health systems, and policymakers who need to work toward solutions.